Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I am the editor of the TLS. Opposite me is Thea Lenarducci, editor of words, eater of cheese and handler of dogs. Hello, I'm all of those things. You are. I want to know whether we should or shouldn't, on a weekly basis, allow you to talk about Alf here. I'm Alf happy update. to, but, but I kind of feel that I, I embrace these sort of mild ticks. Whereas then, everyone else might be... a just annoyed with them really and then we get these forward. emails saying oh you mentioned cheese again which i've done then as well actually. i think I'm, people can get behind alf in a way that they can't really get cheese. behind cheese just because i mean surely most of us eat cheese it's hardly remarkable whereas alf, alf is <laughs> remarkable everything, everything going well <laughs> yeah all, all well and you haven't got asthma he's a stunner he's just, yeah I think you have to. Do, if we're going to do this every week, I think you need to develop. Maybe bring an anecdote or two. Yeah, you need a narrative. Well, the anecdote, you need a narrative the arc, I think. As well, the anecdotes I feel at the moment aren't, aren't great, and he's been a bit poorly. But he's he's coming out the other side. Yeah, we had to starve him for twenty four hours, oh. and my god, that was hard. Just he, the looks he gave us, it oh. was painful. But he's, but he's all right. He's he's been fed this morning, and he's he's fine. Okay. He's made a friend. Oh, has he? Yeah, he's we we take him to the same place walking every day because he's too scared to walk on normal roads so we have to take him into fields and keep him away from cars and stuff every time he goes he makes a new a new dog friend various new human friends any names of the dog friends vader vader was one of them betsy was another that's weird <laughs> um make sure you're subscribing to the tier list wherever you are in the world with i wanted to mention this there we've made an announcement haven't we about a new TLS venture yes TLS books yes we've launched an thing. imprint of harper collins called TLS books and we're going to be in November, publishing three books. One is Lee Child, the thriller writer on the subjects of the hero. Another is Charlotte Shane, who's been on this podcast, yep. writes for the TLS, and she's going to be writing about love, sex, and capitalism. Loves labour. Loves labour, 10,000 words. These are 10,000 word essay books that are kind of giftable. And the third one we're doing is Virginia Woolf, her collected essays from the TLS. She used to basically work for us back in the day. And they we are, made her. We made her, yeah, exactly. <laughs> where, where would Virginia Woolf be without the TLS? So anyway, as I wanted to let everyone know, TLS books, you'll be able to see them ahead of Christmas. On today's show, we tackle three big issues, old age, death, and God. Let's start with God. Dog backwards, Thea. <laughs> yep. Rupert Short, <laughs> Rupert Short, our religion editor, has a new book out called Does Religion Do More Harm Than Good? 
a good question which he is unimprovably equipped to answer. Whether or not God exists, can we delay the process of meeting him or her? Carol Tavris has written the lead review of a number of books that tackle the new problem of old age, which is becoming nasty, brutish and long. Aging, we're all doing it, most of us steadily and unremarkably, some of us suddenly and sadly, others glamorously or disgracefully, whatever that means. According to the United Nations in 2017, there were an estimated 962 million people aged 60 or over in the world, comprising 13% of the global population and growing at a rate of 3% per year. Europe has the highest percentage of over 60s, 25%, but by 2050, all regions of the world except Africa are expected to catch up. The number of persons over 80 years of age, meanwhile, is set to triple by 2050, from 137 million in 2017 to 425 million in 2050. By 2100, assuming anyone or anything is still here, (laughs) the number is expected to septuple, which is not easy to say, to 909 million. Publishing, never one to miss a trend, has spotted its chance. A tsunami of books on ageing has crashed onto the desk of our reviewer, Carol Tavris. Among them are Boulder, Making the Most of Our Longer Lives by Carl Honoré, Borrowed Time, The Science of How and Why We Age by Sue Armstrong, and Retirement and Its Discontents by Michelle Panos Silva. I should say, by the way, that you'll find the full book details for this episode, as with other weeks, in the episode description. Carol Tavris joins us on the line now, though, to talk us through it all. Hello, Carol. Hello, Thea. Hello. When I first asked you to write this piece, you were, I think, a little reluctant. Is that fair? That is fair. And I was. I probably still am. (laughs) Well, just because it's such a daunting subject, isn't it? The physiology of aging, the psychology of aging, the sociology of aging, the economics of aging. And you said, right, that's it. That's what I want. Just do it all. Off you go. Very much. (laughs) Well, leaving to one side how thrilled we are with the end result. Are you glad, would you say, on on a more personal note, perhaps, to have taken it on? You know, yes, as a matter of fact, yes. I didn't expect to find the challenge of this essay to have such a personal effect on me. But I found myself thinking so much about these issues and in in surprising ways, too, in the sense that it makes you think about, well, your own life, how you're living, what you hope for, what you want what we can do in terms of how to live with changes and losses and regrets and so forth, and then how we go forward. It really did cause me to focus on these issues in ways I hadn't anticipated. So thank you, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think is the emphasis Are you cynical about this being such a publishing trend? Because one of the things that struck me reading your, your piece and looking at this list of books is, there's this kind of stench of opportunism about all of us, and maybe that's maybe that's fine. Maybe there's nothing wrong with that. But but you were reflecting personally. But did you look at the sort of the industry around it with skepticism, having read all this stuff? Well, of course, and in fact, I always do, don't I? From time to time, you've asked me to look at something, you know, some some issue, and it turns out, you know, books <laughs> books come out sometimes marching along a path the nose to rear like elephants marching you know in a parade um, where it, there's something timely about the issue compelling about the issue 
and it seems to be in the zeitgeist. So I think there are two things. Yes, of course, there's an economic issue to what is topical and compelling to readers that publishers are thinking about. And also there are demographic changes that make people think, well, you know, what topic will most strike with an audience? So you have it from both directions. There really is a great interest on the part of the public about these issues. And also, yes, an opportunism on the part of publishers and some writers, of course. Mm. And so uh, you've tackled six books here and there is, as you say, there's a lot to get through. So keeping with the categories that you helpfully suggest, the scientific, the personal and the political, let's begin with Sue Armstrong's book, Borrowed Time. What do we get there? There we get a review of what researchers are doing to understand the physiology of aging, what is happening at a cellular level. I mean, let's just get right down into it. (laughs) What is happening uh, in the body? that causes aging and change, which of course then raises the next question, is there anything we can do to slow it or stop it or reverse it? Not really. (laughs) Um, So her book is a very good introduction to the physiology of aging and to the nature of the questions and controversies and debates among researchers about that nature of aging, how much is genetic, how much is a result of our environments and so forth. So in that respect, it's a very useful introduction. She takes on many topics about aging, and so she it's more a book about the scope of the issues in aging rather than a depth analysis of any one of those. But it's a very good introduction for that reason, what the debates are and uh, where the research is going. And of course, there, talk about the economics of aging. Oh, boy, is everybody panting to find the anti-aging <laughs> product whatever it might be. What drug can we take? They thought they might have found it in rapamycin. Yes, well, they always think they find something in something. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that is the nature of how our science news cycle works, isn't it? Ah, I have just found the incredible drug that will do X, Y, Z, that will cure depression, that will cure anxiety, that will fix this problem and that problem and aging and so forth. Then this is always followed by great excitement, funding from some company that expects to get rich, followed by the annoying process of science in (laughs) which the original study is not replicated or turns out to have more complications than anticipated, or it makes your leg fall off, Mm. or it doesn't apply to humans as it does in mice. So that, that part is a natural process, of course, of how science works and is often interrupted by the excitement and the commercial prospects that uh, some researchers hold. The most depressing, not, depressing, but the most telling quote that you, you make in this area is that from a gerontologist, which is a great job, healthcare hasn't slowed the aging process so much as it slowed the dying process, which I thought was a really clear way of, of saying the obvious point, which is that people might live to 100 or 110, but decrepitude, their bodies letting them down, the actual kind of disintegration of their functions and, and, and their, probably at a cellular level, that itself isn't going anywhere. We can just live longer, cling on longer, but we're not necessarily not getting older as we're doing it. Yes, yes. That was Sue Armstrong's quote from a scientist that she spoke to. Um, and indeed, that seems to be the case. People are living longer. And, I, well, I will say this. People living into their 70s and 80s are also living in a, in a healthier and more vigorous way. The kind of frailty and decline that once was considered inevitable and normal for people in their 60s, that has changed. 
So in some respects, people are living longer and in a healthier way. Uh, some of these books point this out, that the assumption that aging inevitably brings decline and decay is not true for very many people who live into old age. It's not that it's that desperate. But it is true that what these advances have caused is a change in what we die from and whether the process of dying is prolonged because of the interventions we are able to make at the very end of life. And presumably, I mean, that also inevitably feeds into the whole discussion around retirement as well, because if we're going to be living longer and in, in be in better condition, then it's not the same as it used to be, perhaps when people had a, a much clearer idea of, of a life expectancy. That's all different now as well, because... It seems people seem to fall loosely into these two categories as those who, who dread retirement versus those who can't wait for it, which I guess is a continuation of those who live to work versus those who, who work to live in that opposition with all of the class and race and gender factors involved in that. Yes, that's been another tremendous change, of course, because it used to be you retired at an age that was pretty close to when you would die, mm. right? And so there, the idea of retirement lasting... 10, 15, 20, 30 years is relatively new in our human uh, history and human modern societies. You know, I think that I've done some work on the benefits of uh, estrogen replacement for women. And one of the scientists who did this research on the benefits of estrogen for uh, women's cognitive function talked about this in her research. She said, people say it's not natural to give women supplementary estrogen. She said, what's not natural is for women to live 30 years past menopause. Mm -hmm. So that kind of observation was really striking to me. It's an example of how our notions of what's natural or normal in the human lifespan have changed profoundly as a result of people living longer, of the nature of jobs and work changing. We no longer live our lives according to a timetable of you will you will marry at this age, you will have children at this age, you will work until that age, and then you will retire, and then then whatever happens to you. All of that is now in flux and change. And this is specifically the focus of um, Michelle Panel Silver's book, isn't it? What, what, what advice does she offer? What, what's, how does she assess <laughs> the situation? Don't retire <laughs> <laughs> unless they kick you out. No, I thought her book was terrific because it's such an unsentimental look at the particular groups of individuals for whom retirement was not welcome, not something they looked forward to. They pretty much had to retire because they had reached a certain age, and that was that for them. But for them, work was identity, was what they most loved to do. It was what filled them with meaning and uh, which is of course a crucial thing for everybody is that that sad carol i mean i I hear this thing that if you are solely identified by what you do for a living does that not mean you've missed out on what essentially it is to be be alive (laughs) well that's a view that would be held by anybody who didn't have a deep satisfaction in the kind of work they do first of all this is a different this is a different issue from living for your work and only your work and having no room for anything else in your life. That, that's not what uh, she is saying in this book or these, these individuals are saying. It's not about that the work gives you money and it's the one thing that you feel you most have to do. 
It is about the deep satisfaction and the meaningfulness of that work that then these individuals find hard to replace upon retirement. What is the reason for me to get up in the morning? So it's not that the, the groups of people that she interviewed, the doctors, the professors, the homemakers, or the athletes, were feeling um, that work was the only thing for them. They had full, rich family lives and cultural lives and Lord knows what else. It was that now what do I do that will give me that feeling of satisfaction? This is a problem for those of us who are writers. You can't mm. retire from writing, you know. It's, but that's, also, that's not a problem as well, isn't it? Because equally, at some level, that's also not a job if, uh, well, because it's something more intrinsic maybe than that. It's not, it's not like having to go to a place and work for 10 hours and leave again. It's something that, that can be more interwoven in, in your life, I suppose. Yes, that's exactly right. That's what was so interesting about her, including homemakers in her category of people having a difficult time with retirement, meaning the activity that was giving you such satisfaction and pleasure and meaningfulness is no longer available to you. So now what is it that you want to do? One question that, 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 that you raise in this, at least implicitly, is that if you have a, an aging population not retiring, you're going to create tension with younger members of society. And we perhaps see this more and more now, the issue of ageism, the issue of people lower down the ladder, younger who aren't getting homes, aren't getting access to jobs because a generation is not moving on in a way that it has historically. Do, do these books in any way answer that, how are we going to cope with that societal tension that comes out of this? No. <laughs> no. Actually, these books in particular did not really address the economics and the demographic issues that the aging population is creating. That was not in this batch. The where were they? Why didn't they? <laughs> yeah. um, because there may not be an answer. But, no one's reading the book. <laughs> well, well, no, it, it is. I mean, I'm a social psychologist, so I was expecting, in a way, more of more books on that kind of issue. But instead, this is actually quite an interesting point because how we feel about aging and what we do is profoundly affected, if not. Primarily determined by these larger demographic and economic issues going on in our societies. And yet, what most of the books do is take a psychological perspective. How am I, a person mm. of this age, going to cope with feelings of loss and change and da 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 without looking at what's happening in our environments to create this? So when Ashton Applewhite cheerfully says, we should avoid age segregation, you know, everybody should be getting on with everybody else, <laughs> which is certainly an important argument, without noticing what the competition is yeah. for work across generations, as you just mentioned, that that's important to consider. These are not just left to individuals to solve, how am I going to do this? They're social and economic problems well exactly and that competition, competition across generations is naturally a huge one exactly that and the the book you mentioned there ashton applewhite's that it's called this chair rocks and it, it builds itself as a manifesto um, its main concern being ageism it seems to feed into this you mentioned that the, the bulk of the books out there are very much written from a first person narrative and i wonder that there is there does seem to be this risk with the kind of the peppy 
ageing is a positive and you have control to shape it and make it what you want, that, that encourages us to ignore the surely larger proportion of the elderly who are lonely and struggling and, uh, and, and the failures of society in, in that. It's interesting. It's an, almost an implicit theme in these books that I think readers may be aware of how many efforts are going on in different societies to try to solve this problem of where old people, really old people, can live that is most satisfying for them and economically feasible. So of course there are many people writing about ways to make it possible for people to age in place, that is to live in the homes that they love and feel comfortable in that don't require massive changes how can we how can we change the environment of aging the environment of a house or an apartment flat that will allow an old person to live where they would most like to live at home for those who can't how do we create communities that are stimulating and helpful i mean these are all in development all over the world as societies are looking for ways to find how to structure those environments in old age. One of my dear friends, a co-author of mine, I guess she's now in her uh, later 70s, and she's got, has had to give up uh, horseback riding, and she's had to give up where she's living, and she's thinking about, now, where do I move? Where do I want to be that will give me intellectual excitement and satisfaction and access to the doctors I might need? So these are all questions under under serious consideration, I think, everywhere. They're under consideration in, in your, your piece, uh, Carol. It's a, it's a great thing to have written. Thank you so much. I'm so glad Thea did ask you <laughs> and you didn't just tell her to stick it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very glad. I'm very glad. It, it wasn't impulse. It wasn't impulse for about 30 seconds. Yeah. Thank you for the invitation to write this essay. It was most most interesting for me, I must say. Thank, thank you. you. We'll have to have a follow-up again. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do this again in 20 years, Carol, yeah. if, if we might. All right. <laughs> Take bye. care. Bye. Um, I can't wait to retire. I don't think... I, I really... You're, well, you're, you're roughly the same generation. You are the same generation as me. I don't, yeah. well, We're never going to retire. That's just not no, going to happen. But that's probably why the I'm money's like, not there know, for a start. That's probably why I think about it all the time. Like, I, quit, I just like to Do go, you really? Yeah. What I, would you do? I'd get up... Well, I'd, I, would, I would hang out with my wife. Mm. I'd walk the dog I'd go to the gym I'd read books maybe I'd write books mm. that's it that's the, well, that, that's your it. life could be more like that now well well, my point is that would it not be nice to have a world where there's certainty and no like, there wouldn't there still wouldn't be certainty well maybe in a different generation you'd own your own house outright your outgoings would massively reduce you'd have a pension that is meaningful and then you could just devote your days to pleasure yeah now we're talking about utopia well i'm not sure how is that not true is that how is that not retirement for a lot of people well i mean for some people it is i don't yeah. think for most people it is and i think increasingly it won't be because well, the, the state retirement be. no isn't, increasingly isn't it won't exist be. and but i kind of feel it does the exist retirement age is creeping up anyway so now in uh, in this country it's what 65 now going 67. to be 67, 67 guess, yeah. italy roughly about the same the genders are leveling, are leveling out as they should I think. Yes. <laughs> Fair enough. Even though it doesn't count in my favour. But yeah, I can't see us ever really retiring unless we're the lucky few who managed to put together a pot of our savings to be able to then have that security and 
that's certainty dream, that you're that's talking saying, about. That, pure when, dream. But when people say, "Oh, retirement, you'd be so bored," it's like, oh no, that's like of saying course you'd be, not. Of course, I wouldn't be bored. Like, but that's that's also what Carol, Carol was saying. Like, we're we're lucky because we have a job that extends into our hobby. Our job and our hobby is essentially quite similar. Yeah. It's reading, yeah. maybe writing. Yeah learning you yeah. know so that's fine messing about well yeah messing about walking the dog <laughs> you're professionally now associated professionally. with dog. you're professionally <laughs> dog associated yeah all right all right but i do feel i do think someone said to me tomorrow you could retire in a way of you know your outgoings would be, you, yeah. your outgoings would be less than your incoming right and you could just pursue a quiet happy life of the mind yeah That'd be lovely. But you'd publish, so you wouldn't technically... No. I mean, that doesn't count as retirement, no. does Even it? Even without the publishing, it'd still be nice. Just, <laughs> just, just reading books and... Be like, lovely. Walking out. Be lovely. Yeah. Not going to happen. Right. I mean, I'll walk out, but... Yeah, you should do. <laughs> yeah, take your, fair. You've taken all this trouble. <laughs> Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. We may be living in a post-secular age, which seems extraordinary since it doesn't seem to be long since we were heralding a post-religious one. According to Rupert Short, three quarters of humanity now possess a faith, and that is only likely to increase. Gone are the days in which people believed that religion would disappear, killed by science or scepticism or education. So what do we now know about the state of religion? What arguments exist for the reality of God? And to quote the title of Rupert's lovely book on the subject, does religion do more harm than good? 
all big questions and the big man himself is in the studio rupert hello hello oh not that big man though well, <laughs> spiritually okay. i've always felt big Ru- man with a small beard yeah i've always felt rupert's a spiritually big man <laughs> um why we accept that the world is becoming more religious rupert why is it becoming more religious because almost intuitively i find that hard to believe that is the the reflex of a, a Western secularist. But as you indicate, things in the world as a whole are, are very different. I would offer two answers. One is precisely connected with democratization, globalization, modernization. That's to say an earlier generation of elites in various countries from Egypt to Turkey to India impose secularism from on high. There was a sort of assumption that religion was inherently backward and it would naturally fade away. And guess what? Religion has come back to bite them in the form of fundamentalism now. So so by squishing them down, it it sort of forced religion to become a concentrated essence that wasn't necessarily a very very healthy one. That's right. I mean, people want to profess a faith and they were prevented from doing so for for much of the 20th century. But I would, if if you'll permit me, just add a, a sort of more conceptual reason, which is that However far we advance with science, I just don't feel that human understanding will ever be exhausted by mapping the world of nature, mapping the the, the book of nature, if you like. Uh, People will always ask questions about what the good life consists in. And I recently heard a lecture by Ian McGilchrist, who many of our listeners, I'm sure, will know is is distinguished really as a a philosopher and a a neuroscientist and doesn't really have any particular religious axe to grind. And I, I was very struck by the way that he was talking about religion as as more of a, a right-brained activity and warning of the, the, the danger of too much of a a left-brained approach to this. He said the following, that if if you have too much of a left-brained approach, there's no place for the intuitive and the implicit through which all great ideas in art, in religion, and in our lives are communicated. Making things more explicit doesn't necessarily make them easier to understand. It means we understand something other than what it is we're seeking to know. Sometimes things can speak very loudly to us through ritual, through a mythos, which is not a fiction, but is just another type of truth from logos, which one arrives at by sequential reasoning. Metaphor is a way to deal with the apophatic. They say he who knows doesn't tell, and he who tells doesn't know. Left brain is what? Left brain is artistic and right brain is sort of explicatory. Is that right? Is that what you're saying? That, that uh, we, should, we should approach this through... Not no, see- le- le- left brain is associated more with problem solving and sequential okay. reasoning. And one of his theses is that since the Enlightenment, we have tended to esteem the left brain too much at the expense of the right brain's more intuitive grasp of the big picture. Yeah, okay. So in a kind of Donald Rumsfeld sense, there's a kind of known unknown. And what happens with science in the end is you get to a point where you know what you don't know, and that will always be a space for religion to creep in. Because science will never say, here is from A to to Z, here is the answer of existence. There'll always be 
some known unknowns that religion can provide. The That's answer. right. And I'm not talking about uh, God of the gaps here. I'm talking about questions of, of meaning and value and existence as such, which I would say lie outside the province of science. But does that mean it has to be organised religion? Because the picture you paint of the world becoming more religious isn't true of this country, the United Kingdom. Over half our country has no religion now. I think that's the first time that's ever happened, or since they've even bothered asking the question. But there's a quote, so I looked at this one in, in my book, 80% believe there's something more in the world than science can, can provide. And there's a quote in a book I read, Grace Davies' book, which we reviewed in the paper on religion in Britain. And there was a, a survey and it said, do you believe in a God who can change the course of events on earth? And the person said, no, just the ordinary one. Implying, therefore, that... People want there to be something, they want there to be a kind of mystery and mysticism and beauty and something ineffable, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're Christian or Buddhist or Hindu or Muslim or they want to go to church. They just want something out there. And it, does that count as faith for you or do you need to be part of the part of the gang? Well, it's very fashionable, of course, to describe oneself as spiritual but not religious. And yeah. My... Uh, uh, I'm not sure I'm either. Slightly naughty <laughs> take on that is to say that I'm, I'm religious but not spiritual. I think that religious faith communities, when when they are healthy, when they're functioning well, they can hone the vision and they can get things done. There's a very good definition of religion by Jonathan Sachs, the former chief rabbi in this country, who, who describes it as part of the ecology of freedom because it supports families, communities, charities voluntary associations, active citizenship, and concern for the common good. It's a key contributor to civil society, which is what holds us together without the coercive power of law. Without it, we will depend entirely on the state. And when that happens, we risk what the historian J.L. Talmon called totalitarian democracy, unquote, which is what revolutionary France eventually became. I think there's, there's a real insight there. But that's a one-eyed view, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's if you are, and you know, we'll get to this, that your book tries to weigh in the scale, has religion done more harm and good? That Sachs is articulating the best possible view well, I, with I, the best possible motives, because yeah. it is fair, is it not, to ascribe something other than pure motives to people who have acted in the name of religion? I did stress uh, good religion, un, untoxic religion, healthy, self-critical religion. Heavens above, if it's a choice between principled atheism and the petty despot uh, worshipped by so many people over the centuries, then give me principled atheism any day. And let me make it very, very clear um, right now that my book has a lot of very bracing things to say about bad religion. Are you a spiritual person, Theo? Do you feel that you're spiritual, not religious? Religious, not spiritual? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not religious at all. I don't really want to talk about me, though. Okay, fine. Are you suspicious? Of it? I'm suspicious. I, well, I'm, what I'm quite interested in, and I was about to ask Rupert, in fact, was if the world is becoming more religious, if faith is, is growing, is it, it's also becoming more oppositional in terms of the way those faiths are held, though, isn't it? Yes, I think you're probably pointing to the, the way that religion has become very tied up with identity. I mean, ultimately, religion is a form of kinship bond. We ought to have some kind of um, definition at some point in this discussion, since we're, we're talking about an extremely slippery word. The, the, the one I 
produces that uh, religion is involves the apprehension and symbolic representation of sacred or non-ordinary reality. And that's all very well in theory, but as your question implies, in the same way that other forms of kinship bond can become corrupted for political, social, economic reasons, religion has become weaponized in in recent decades, and it, it's connected with some of the political currents I mentioned right at the start. It's become highly politicized in um, India, for example, as well as in the Islamic world. And although I would want to just put up one marker for a problem connected with corruptions in our trade, that's to say that uh, volcanic corruptions, <laughs> when a, a volcano explodes, that that, that counts as, as news, but... Underground irrigation systems providing stable life for generations. Uh, so you only hear the bad stuff. That, that, that's right. We 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 hear we hear the, the 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 bad stuff. That across a large belt of the world, the local mosque or the local church is providing a kind of hub for the distribution of aid or medicine or, or education. That that doesn't really count as news most of the time. Here's a positive thought. And then I'm gonna. After that, I'm gonna have a negative thought. You'll, as you'll imagine, might imagine. But here's a positive thought. Do you think this is the first time in human history that atheism and religion has the ability to coexist? Because if you think that, that we lived in theocracies more or less forever, and gradually since the Enlightenment that's dwindled a bit, but often the church and the state have been very intertwined, and the power of the state has enforced the practices of the church. So if you were an atheist, you were a dissident, and then in large, num- large numbers of places you were suppressed. Could this be a golden age where people who don't believe anything can sit alongside people who believe things and, and, and coexist and find points to share? Yes, I think your, your comment on the coexistence of church and state points to the way that religion became corrupted in the Constantinian settlement if if we can put it like that the first christians were much more dissident in fact they they were regarded as atheists by the the roman authorities because they they refused to 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 worship other gods my feeling and i i don't think that this is a a a liberal cop-out i i think it's some precisely a, a, a recognition of of the keynotes within Christianity and and indeed within Islam, that freedom of belief ought to be respected. That it that it's implicit in the Gospels that there should be no coercion in religion. That that is a. But that's a, a not been the way of human history. It it hasn't. But it is a. If I say that it's a explicitly stated in the Quran and that it's implied to my mind in in the New Testament even if it's taken these religious bodies rather a, a long time to, to wake up to this reality in the same way that it took them rather a long time to, to wake up to the evils of slavery, even though I'd have thought it's plain as a pike staff that slavery is incompatible with Christianity. Yeah, let, let all sorts of different worldview bloom. Now, as long as 
secular authoritarianism isn't allowed to to take root too deeply and that we're aware of of what we're doing i mean that there are religious cultural critics who make what i think is a, a fair point now which is that having kicked god into touch the traditional god of institutional christianity notionally in the name of freedom that we have embraced a different kind of religion in the form of paganism which is all the more pernicious for not being recognized as such so in other words now mars the god of war mammon the god of money aphrodite the goddess of erotic love are worshipped as widely as they ever were they're not parallel ideas at all are they i mean to say that 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 sex is is like Aphrodite is just to, just to personify it needlessly. We're not replacing God with another God. We're just moving away from considering that God actually has to have any relevance in in a world. I would say that they all count as forms of worship of the golden calf. Really? Yes, I do. I do, particularly in a world faced by environmental crisis, sexualization of children. Crass consumerism, relativism, absolutely. But what does that have to do with religion or its absence? I think it has to do with the jettisoning of religion. It's not that you can't be a good, responsible, secular humanist, but I think there are values that were embedded in the historic creeds that we we have lost and 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 that 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 has been but there were values in those creeds that were utterly unbearable in the same creeds if you re- i mean any of the religions of the book you, you know you go to the old testament it, it's filled with creeds that, that as we, we've talked about this before people had to jettison because they were unworkable in modernity because they're unacceptable well from a christian standpoint the Old Testament needs to be relativized because the full revelation of God as Trinity doesn't occur until the New Testament. So we're talking about an unfolding revelation here. We're talking about stumbles, cul-de-sacs, false moves, and a gradual refinement uh, of the vision. I certainly think that we have gained enormously. If you think of great, great blessings from gender equality to all sorts of of greater tolerance than we had. But I don't think the direction of travel has been entirely positive. Can you empathise, Rupert, when we're having this conversation? I fundamentally believe that the existence of God is implausible. Not in a a contentious way, I just... Not because I want to convince you or you to convince me. I just, in my worldview... There's no place for this. And I think the scaffolding you need to erect to make it plausible argues against it even further. Does that bother you? Do you think we can happily disagree or does something nag at you? Think, well, what the hell? He just can't see this. He cannot <laughs> see what I can see and feel to my very core. And I, don't, I think it's, it's magic. I think it's... Well- We've spoken about this a bit before you and I, Rupert, because we were both brought... I don't know whether you were, Stig, but we were both brought up uh, religious. Religious. I was brought up Catholic. I mean, not in a kind of a really orthodox sense, but we we went to church and certainly Christmas and Easter. I still go to church Christmas and Easter. Do you? Yeah, just. But I do that. I do that for 
And this can only sound really limp, I think, but I do that for my family. I do that for what it symbolises within my family and how happy it makes my grandparents and just the the, the repeat the repeat of something but i don't for a second believe that there is a god but i can i can sort of i can i can believe the goodwill i can believe the the sentiment of of what you do at easter and what you do at christmas and why it's just a reminder that you know as rupert was saying it's there, there can be better ways of living and there's a kind of we talk to cultural Jewish people who say they don't believe in that they value Jewishness as a kind of cultural entity, but they don't believe necessarily in any any of the actual religious side of it. There's a, there's a kind of cultural benefit and yeah, and that and, that, and to... that feeds into what you were saying again, consumer society and all of that about kind of just buying responsibly, consuming responsibly, or ethically or whatever. That that's all part and parcel of the same thing. But as Dig was saying, do you have to have that faith for it to be whole, for it to be complete and grounded and good well when when, when you get your self-facing rooms in in heaven um, <laughs> by which time it'll be a surprise by which time presumably you'll be you'll be ex-atheist you might look on it a, a bit differently the pope in, incidentally was was asked recently whether dogs go to to heaven and his his immortal <laughs> reply was how, how could you possibly ever have heaven without dogs <laughs> <clears throat> <laughs> there was a church. I, sorry, in, in parenthesis, there was a church just down the road from from me where uh, when I grew up, where um, every year you could take your dog, your cat, your pet to be um, to, to take communion. To be blessed. To be blessed. <laughs> not, yes, to not, take communion. not to take communion. <laughs> that would be Look, weird. I don't. I don't have any problem with with your expressing your your view. I mean, you must follow your conscience above all. But I am happy to explain why I feel. As I do, which um, do you pity? Do you is pity? rather do you differently. Pity? No, I, I don't pity you, but I, I think there is a certain sidestepping here of perhaps the deepest question of all, which is why there is something rather than nothing. But forgive me, you could make an argument that you're sidestepping it in the most easy way because you're asserting something that can't be explained. And, that, you know, God moves in mysterious ways argument is the classic sidestep. It's the classic, it has been the classic intellectual sidestep forever, which is to say, we don't know, therefore we're going to ascribe it to a being that we cannot possibly know. And I can live with randomness the great engine of the universe being mutation and randomness, and then something beyond that that is simply inexplicable. Yes, but that, that's your god of the gaps, if you don't mind my saying so. But because brute, god, brute, brute fact, that, that's the Bertrand Russell line, in effect. Brute fact, it, it's just there. I mean, that to me is rather like carefully aligning some books along a shelf, yeah. attaching the shelf to a bracket attaching the bracket to a larger bracket and then just thinking that the whole thing can just be suspended in, in, in midair without any uh, final ontological undergirding. Yeah, but the culture argument is you, you make this of the blind watchmaker argument, which is that it's so complicated and so precise that there must be a master being behind it, right? That's, the, that's one of the arguments in favour of the existence of God. Whereas I, I would say... I can accept that behind the big band there is something I do not know. But I don't have to put a beard on that and say, therefore, there must be a master presence. But what are you saying? Are you saying that matter exists necessarily when there's absolutely no evidence of that? We're getting into hugely deep waters here, which I am 
palpably unqualified. Not equipped for. Yeah, not. It's always a joy. We, I mean, people don't realise this. We have conversations not far removed from this in the office, because I sort of tootle around, and and we all do, don't we, Theo? I think we sort of talk, think about why we're here. And your book is a. I've actually read it. It's a lovely thing, and. Like you say, you criticise religion as well. And it, it asks questions that whether or not you agree with Rupert's very lucid answer there or you're still baffled, it's still worth having these conversations, isn't it? Rupert Short, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. That's what we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Carol Tavris and Rupert Short. Get subscribing to the TLS this week. There is much to enjoy, I promise. Next week, as we approach the official Brexit date, although no Brexit is guaranteed there... We'll be celebrating all things European in culture, which is a nice thing to do. It was it was more ironic when 29th of March looked like it was going to be the, <laughs> yeah. the actual date of Brexit. But there's still an irony that's yeah. lingering. Uh, so you can help us take back control of the world of the arts if you want to. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.